Welcome to USIP ICIP, a weekly podcast with Northern Lights Winery founder Doug Bell, exploring the experiences from leaders in business, social media, and family. Now, here's this week's exceptional guest. Welcome to USIP ICIP. I'm Doug Bell, the host of the podcast. I'm excited to have Dave Horton here with me today. Um, and Dave has a new role as executive director of the Nestle Bible Camp. Um, he is also a very popular guy in Prince George because he hosts a ton of events and he doesn't necessarily do this for money. This guy is actually doing it um, for free and is really supporting the community. Now, during the COVID-19 pandemic, you really stepped up and I can't wait to hear the stories of how some of your uh, projects came to fruition because I know there was a lot of effort uh, in them and also the community really appreciates it so much so that they gave you an award recently. We're going to talk about that really shortly. But Dave, welcome to You Sip I Sip. I'm drinking a Cassis Noir black currant wine. Woo. Yes, you have some water, some coffee in that cup. So this is going to be a good project since I'm getting early in the morning, I'm getting my wine in. Uh, but I want to start with maybe your backstory and where you came from and how maybe your love for uh, helping your community started. For sure. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> That's what I know. Uh, so I like I'm born and raised in Prince George. I uh, went to Van Vianne Elementary and then John McGinnis and PGSS. But I remember in, uh, in elementary school, uh, I kept so like at the end of the year, they handled these those awards, right? And it was like top academic and like top athletic. And let me tell you, neither one of those were on the radar for me. I was, I was not about to win either of those awards, but I kept getting this award for citizenship. But I don't remember ever really being explained what it was. And um, I remember always being surprised, like every year being surprised by it. And they would say like, David Horton for citizenship. And I'd go up and take the certificate, but I had no idea like what it, what it was or what it meant or why even I was getting it. Um, and so I don't know, there's something for sure. There's something in like my wiring. There's something just in my head that sees, and it's funny to win those like citizenship awards as a kid and then to, to, then to receive the provincial medal for good citizenship <laughs> and still, still getting the phone call for that. I was like, Oh, I guess there wasn't very many candidates this year. You know, like, it's like, why, why did I get this? So there's definitely something in my head. My wife says the same thing. She's like, there's something in you that just sees need and just kind of naturally builds community. But I, it's not wildly intentional. It's not like I read a book and was like, yeah, like I'm going to like develop this skill set. It's like, I don't know. It's just, there's like stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that's where I want to be. That's what I want to do. Well, I think your your wife is right. And I think the, the terminology building community is really what you do. So, uh, it, Many people, when they finish their day at work, they go home, they relax, they play with their kids a little bit, and then they go to bed. You have a family, but then you also seem to derive a lot of, a lot of enthusiasm for doing all these other projects. Was there a first project maybe that was even back in high school that you started where you didn't necessarily do it for the money, but you did it because you wanted to help somebody and, and communicate something? Yeah, I mean, like... I'm a, I'm a Jesus dude. And so like, as a Christian, there's a lot of like community in faith. And, and that's like in a lot of faiths, there's that community is a huge part, whether you're like a Muslim or a Sikh or whatever that is, like community is a massive part of that. So I think that's some of like the shaping, a lot of what like shaped my like desire and kind of got a taste for me for building community was just being in really healthy groups and really healthy communities that I felt built up a lot. Like my, uh, my parents got divorced when I was like eight ish. And, um, I remember my mom kind of taking us as like three, three boys and trying to find like a, a new, a new church, a new community, like a new place. Um, and she found like a church and then just watching those people kind of, and it really is when you're eight, <clears throat> you don't really know what's going on. But you see new, you, your parents have new friends and your mom has new people and you meet their kids and then just kind of that thing and how much that kind of like built her up and meant to her. So I think that kind of like just carried through to things for me as well, like through high school, um, <clears throat> joined student council. So when I say that I'm not an academic, like I am not an academic, like, you know, the super 12s, those guys who come back for an extra semester of grade 12 because 
just something didn't go quite right in there. Like I was this super 12. I was like a full grown man with like a beard in high school. And then when you're a super 12, those returning 12s, there's no, all your friends are gone. Your graduating class left. And you're, so you're there with all these people who are a year younger. And in high school, that's like a bigger deal. Um, and so I remember being there and being like kind of on my own, my social supports and circle were gone. And I remember saying to myself, like, I'm not, I, and I think that's kind of one of the things that just repeats in my head is I don't want to just be here. I don't want to just exist. I want to do something with this time. And I don't want to have it just wasted on like the TV or being entertained. It's like, I would rather choose. I think that's part of the wiring is like, I'd rather choose how I'm entertained. And if I'm going to choose it, it's like, let's just do something crazy. So I joined student council, but it is, it's like that it's the weirdness of this, uh, like academic failure, right. Who has to be there because he couldn't do school well enough. And there was some like mental health stuff in grade eight, grade nine for me that like, I missed quite a bit of school for mental health stuff. And so that's why I miss so it. But to be there as a super 12 doing, uh, helping with student council and then you got to just run events. So it was like spam carving contests and just kind of watching the school be like, why, like, why do this? But high school definitely developed a lot of that thing of like more, it's like entertainment is more than entertainment. Entertainment can be connection and entertainment can be like, can get like, can change people. It can, um, move them from places of like inward kind of spiraling self-focus to outward thought and to being more open and honest and uh, transparent with each other, things like that. So, yeah, I think I, I want to stay here for a second because uh, one thing you kind of mentioned and you've said it a couple times is that you're not an academic, right? Um, why do you think that is, is it because, because you are a very intelligent, very articulate person and per perhaps um, that was just not where your interest lies, right? Because you can tell when you put your efforts and your motivation behind something you're passionate about, like events, you're, you're able to achieve things that uh, very few academics could achieve. Um, do, you, do you feel like there was maybe a missed opportunity within the school system to kind of identify that in you earlier and maybe try and uh, drive more interest for, for your schooling? I, I, I could not. They couldn't get me to care. <laughs> like, that's really what it was was uh like i looked behind like because you, you get taught in, in these things right and especially high school you're given like all these courses and i just could not see myself applying what they were learning which is not a great perspective to have right like because it, it's almost this arrogance of like i'm not going to be using this so why am i going to apply myself like that to me is just like arrogance right <laughs> like i'm not going to listen because i know best right i know best is not the best place to live in but I remember I did the, the, the vice principal or principal sent me and another student when I was a super 12, they sent us to the CBC for an interview and this other student was a cadet. So like a military cadet. And then I was like clearly headed into this thing of like, um, like my, my faith was leading, my faith was leading me to where I was going to find a career, whether I was like a youth pastor or a camp guy, or it was going to be something working with children and youth, just kind of my passion was. So the interview was all based around like, how, what could the school system have done? I remember doing this interview. I have forgotten about this till like this moment, uh, the CBC. And I remember telling them like, I don't know what the school system could have done for me to catch my interest. Uh, cause it, it, like, were they going to offer something for every faith, yeah. right? Like, like the schools can't like public schools can't hold religious teaching, but they definitely didn't hold me back from applying my faith. Uh, and not like the preaching and the like, trying to, trying to, or the debate-ish side that can exist in faith of like, I'm going to convince you to believe what I believe, but they couldn't stop me in the side of like service and empathy and compassion and like, and then trying to just engage people. And I was like, so I don't know that, I don't know if there's much more they could have done. They, they, they didn't hold me back. That's for sure. Like the, the administration and the teachers I had, like when I hit leadership courses, strangely, I got great marks and like drama and these things, but like English <clears throat> and I did okay at history. Um, but like math, oh my gosh. Like I was a super 12, like a grown man, like 19 and in a, in a, in a math 11 course. Mm -hmm. And like just the embarrassment <laughs> of being there with Mr. LaFleur and I still see him around town. But the, the part that engaged me was like, Mr. LaFleur was a phenomenal teacher and he, he, recognize that we were just going to get through that class, but 
he allowed us to like, I don't know. He, he had like a, it was like a social thing in that class. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. Definitely didn't hold me back. Yeah, very interesting. And, and uh, it sounds to me like there were some people within the school system that identified that you weren't necessarily um, achieving poor results from an academic standpoint due to uh, you as an individual and your abilities to be successful, that you were perhaps uh, uh, not achieving them for other reasons. And so they tried to, did anyone try and feed into um, those passions that you did have, uh, whether it was leadership uh, or, you know, or empathy or faith or, or those types of things? Is yeah. there some specific instances where people really kind of drove you forward? I cannot remember her name, but she was the leadership teacher when I was in grade 12. And she, she saw something for sure. Cause she kept handing me the microphone. Um, and I like my mental health stuff in grade eight, grade nine, it was like depression. And, uh, it was like diagnosed with like obsessive compulsive disorder. And I don't, like, I think I got something going on for sure. <laughs> like as an adult, I work and it's like, I will work with just like blasting music and headphones to focus or like falling asleep to system of a down kind of thing. And I'm like, that, that's gotta be a sign of something. I like just the, so, but she, to, to go from like this hyper introverted, hyper nervous, grade eight, grade nine, grade 10, and then in grade 11, grade 12, it was, she handed me the microphone and, um, I just kind of, she saw something I didn't know was there. Cause I remember doing this like public speaking stuff, like rallies, it was the entire, like all of PGSS and standing there. And it was supposed to be me. And I think it was Coulter McKay, that piece of dirt he ditched. <laughs> so we were supposed to be the two of us emceeing, I think. And he just didn't show and standing there and all the lights in the gym kill. And then it's just a spotlight on me in the entire gymnasium at PGSS. And to go from like, I couldn't get myself out the door in grade eight. I like my poor mom and my poor dad, like they, they couldn't get me out the door to go to school. I was so, it was like anxiety, you know, anxiety wasn't called anxiety then. It was, they were trying to, you know, it, yeah. it just, and it wasn't understood as much, but I think, if I was in grade eight now, it'd be a lot easier. People would be like, you're anxious about going to school. But to go from that, where it was like hyper introverted, like this wounded, quiet, and then three years later to be like in front of the whole school with a microphone and then just winging it. And kind of, she she was, uh, that teacher kind of recognized that ability to like wing it. And that's where those like the drama classes and not necessarily, necessarily theater, but like the improv and drama classes, I just like thrived in those and it those like just felt like they were just rocket fuel on something that was already there this thing of like wing it do it make it up make it happen i was like i didn't know i wanted to do that so we've talked to a few people on this podcast that are presenters or outward facing extroverts that communicate very well with the with the community um and one thing that we've noticed is that there has always been a component of natural and innate ability for people to be able to do that and often that showcases at a fairly young age in your case maybe was uh, a little bit later on Um, but then there's the practice component yeah right and if if you don't love it you're not going to want to do it again and again and again but you get better as you start to develop these um, patterns and and uh, you can recognize how an audience will react to specific ways of communicating you have a very outward way of communicating which I think is is very recognizable because there's a little bit of maybe self-deprecation but also <laughs> it's very humorous uh, you aren't afraid of looking a little bit ridiculous to communicate a message that you feel is important uh, and so is that something that started right from the beginning uh, or was there an influence like a macho man, Randy Savage type person <laughs> that you that you idolized that you wanted to kind of imitate a little bit? I think it's that like the like improv and like drama stuff, like because in grade eight, you don't get to pick your life. And so you're forced into these courses like you're going to do woodworking like ah, you'll be you'll be great make a cutting board and then the next thing is you're sewing the next thing is you're tight right they're just trying and i appreciate that about the public school system about the school system in general they they cast out all these options and really they're just trying to push it through but that drama one it really was that um i think what it kind of taught me when you said like that self-deprecation it was like i didn't have to take myself as seriously as as it was it was like i am not I'm not a big deal. 
Um, and that's great. That's actually super freeing for me is like, I'm not a big deal. This isn't a big deal. And that's kind of led along throughout those things. Cause if, if, if things are a big deal, if they're hyper serious, then there's like this pressure to, yeah, there's this pressure to meet someone else's standards. But what drama and theater and improv do is it is that thing. You're, you're ridiculous and you're acting outside of yourself and you're getting kind of that like reaction and also realizing it's like, I am liked for who I am. And I'm also liked for how I can make others feel. So I think that's, that's some of what it was for sure. Cause even during like candy cruise, like I like, like wearing stupid hats and filming myself in parking lots, like, <laughs> like it's just stupid stuff. But the, the, the cost of that stupidity and that like silliness, maybe it's not stupidity, maybe it's more silliness, right? Or what could be like immaturity was like, it had to be that to have engagement. And it was that thing of like, you, you need to be this. And then like running program at Nest Lake uh, at the camp and just seeing it was, it was like my ridiculousness and my willingness to not take myself too seriously um, gave people like great weeks at camp. And, and, and if, like more fabulous experiences and drew people in that otherwise would not, if the person in front is willing to like laugh at themselves and, and draw others in and to like mention other people, like to, to look for the fringe and to draw them in kind of thing with their own bizarreness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's uh, often you will see how when somebody breaks the tension by being completely ridiculous yeah. there's like a knife that cuts through any tension that might be there at the time and allows everybody to relax and 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 release a little bit more and and be more accepting of other people as well so i i think that's great after uh you graduated your super grad year uh you, you moved on and uh, you started to get into events because now you were not in the public system anymore. You didn't have that outlet. Yeah. Tell us how you developed your portfolio of, of events that eventually accumulated into a pretty cool award. So when I was 15, my brother Tyler, my, see, this is the gold thing of my family. My brother Tyler is the academic. He is completing his PhD at Cambridge, or at Cambridge England right now. Right? Like that's the hilariousness, like the bipolarness of our family is like, you got Tyler and you got Dave. My brother Tyler had worked at Nest Lake um, in like in 96. And then in 99, like 1999, he was like, Dave, you've, you've got to do this. Because uh, our youth group at our church, like at College Heights Baptist is where we had kind of landed as a family, was huge in helping me like heal and work through this anxiety and depression. And really like speaking in and saying like, hey, yeah, you've got stuff going on in your life, but that's not like your identity right? Like the stuff going on in your life isn't who you are. Those are things happening to you. And then kind of finding that. So the, the youth group was big for that. And like our, our pastor at College Heights right now, it's Curtis Reimer, but he was a youth pastor then. And he just let me do like the stupidest stuff. So this, this like obsessive compulsive thing, like I really love Star Wars. And I remember like watching it as a kid. And I was like, this is simply the greatest thing ever. Like, I don't know what else there could be. My friend, me and my friend Scott, I think we watched it like 40, the whole trilogy, like 40 times. Wow. Like we would just watch and he would, he could recite them with a the sound off. We would watch it with a sound off and he would recite the whole thing. So Curtis kind of saw the same thing even earlier than that uh, leadership teacher. I wish I could remember her name. She was great. Um, but he would allow me to like run small sections of the youth group. And so he had me do like a Star Wars highlight uh, once every couple of weeks. So I'd have like 40 people in this youth group and I was in grade like nine, 10. And he, and he had like gave me like the ability to like print overheads for like the overhead projectors. Um, and then I would just teach on the obscurity, the obscure ends of star Wars, like certain blasters, what they're called and how they're used and like characters. And I, uh, that it was that kind of stuff. And that youth group stuff kind of tied, um, like the improv life and that together. So then going to camp in 99, was just, like I said, like rocket fuel on a candle. Like there was a slow burn and then camp just allows you to figure out who you are and to separate like the hurt and the damage or even what people be are told that they're going to be like, you're going to be this. And they, they show up and camp is like, you're independent. You're on your own. Your parents aren't there. You are who you are. You pick, you get to pick who you are that week or for the staff that summer. And so 
I got to like try out who I was. And that was the end of grade 10 going into grade 11. But event wise, it was, it was mostly within like youth group thing. Um, and then the, like the camp just allowing me to run more and more of the program. So like introduce games. So we had a program director one year, Dave Fields, and he was like a deeply uh, pastoral and like pastoral would be like empathetic, compassionate, like wanted to build a heart, but he wasn't like a program guy. He wasn't like, Hey, it's great to see you guys. Let's go play a game in the Rose Bowl. He was like, we're, you know, we're really excited that you're all here. And I, I care about you. And I like, so he was like, why am I doing this? And he just handed me like the game introductions and stuff. And it was that thing discovering people saw in me what I did not. And that's kind of a common theme from like the, those elementary school citizenship awards to like the like youth group in school and even through the pandemic running this stuff people saying like wow like you you're really doing this and i'm like but anybody could do this and and it is people are like no like you're doing this and nobody else is doing this and then to get recognized provincially to receive a medal for it i'm still like but anybody could have done that mm -hmm. and it, it still is that thing of like so yeah in terms of like running events my own events like dave horton events really didn't kick off till the pandemic yeah. It was always partnered. Yeah. So uh, what are some of the types of events that you started with? And, and can you maybe take us through your progression into uh, one of the, the largest events that uh, the city of Prince George has ever seen in the Candy Cruise? Maybe well, tell us what that planning uh, and that progression was like. That's wild. I've always thought of it as like the biggest Halloween party at Prince George may ever see. I've always thought about it that way. I've never really thought about it as like one of the biggest events, but it was kind of big. <laughs> it was very big it was very huge big. that's interesting and it was everywhere too it wasn't like you couldn't escape the thing um like you mean like pandemic wise or are you just thinking like life in general wise? well i mean so you started out by providing like movie nights oh, uh, yeah, on the yeah. church and yeah. and you you were developing a little bit of a reputation for uh bringing people together in a place where they were really looking for outlets because yeah. people were lost they they a lot of people lost their communities their social circles their faith circles because a lot of uh services were shut down at the time yeah. and you stepped in to fill this gap um you and you didn't just do this um illegally like you worked with health officials to make sure that that it was going well um, yeah. yeah tell me more it, about that so we i was on vancouver island with my kids and my wife and um we were watching the whole thing unfold so we drove down on like march the 15th of 2020 so we knew that the pandemic was going like things were coming and we secretly were like maybe it'll shut down the ferries and we'll just get trapped on <laughs> vancouver island because i was like that wouldn't be the worst thing but I, we were watching it all unfold and just talking to my wife, I was like, so what does this mean for us, right? Because being the news of the pandemic made a lot of people, it was like the fight, flight, or freeze. And I was like, I want to, and, and now in hindsight, I'm like, let's fight it, essentially is what I was saying. It wasn't that intentional, but essentially I was saying with me and my wife, I was like, what, so, so what? So if they shut everything down, so what? What does that mean for us? Are we just going to lock down? Are we just going to disappear? Um, so I think I went more into fight than freeze or flight. I think I, yeah, it was this thing. I was like, well, what can we do? So in this brainstorm was, uh, like driving events. I was like, I bet you that you, like, why couldn't you do driving events? So I went on Amazon and bought like an FM transmitter, uh, and then had it shipped home. And then we, when he traveled back for our vacation, we landed at home. And I, when I, by the time I landed back at home, I had no job. The camp had said like, like we got my director, Elliot made the right call. And he's like, I got to lay off as many people as I can. We've got to go into like mothball mode. So then all of a sudden I was, had all the time in the world, um, was homeschooling, right? Our six, I think we had six at that time. I don't think we had any more than that at the time. Um, but then I was like, had this drive of like, there's a need. That, that movie Robots, like uh, Big Weld, it's like, see a need, fill a need. I remember watching that as an adult. And I was like, that's like a thing. Like the see a need, fill a need, as, as stupid and as Disney as that is. Uh, it's like, that's a that's an actual thing. If you like to see a need and fill a need. And part of my faith is this thing of like, if you, uh, if you know what you, if you know what to do is right and you don't do it, this like, it's like the sin of omission. Like if you know something that is, that can help others and that is right and you don't do it, that also is not okay. 
it's not okay to like not do what is right. It's not this idea, always this idea of like doing wrong. And so for me, I was like, there is need, like there is need in homes, there is need in communities, there is need in everything. And it was like, and I'm laid off. So I'm not okay just to sit by, but I, I, I'm also like a big rule guy. I'm like, I don't, I am a nightmare to drive with because it's like going eight over the speed limit. That's okay. Going 10 over that is not okay. <laughs> and like stopping at stop signs, I, even early on, it's like, I will stop at a stop sign three in the morning on a logging road where I haven't seen a car in two hours. Like I will full stop. And I don't know why. So that wiring for following rules, but then also looking for the loopholes uh, was kind of how it started. So it was arrive, find this FM transmitter, start to test it out. And then as soon as I realized its range was like 400 meters, started to realize what I could do. And I still had access to a lot of the camps, projectors and equipment. And then I have a lot of my own sound equipment at home. Um, I, pay, I play drums. And so I, part of the role of a drummer is to be of some value <laughs> to a band. And so that like I had like other equipment. So it was just starting to test it. I was like, oh my gosh. And then running the first drive-in movie um, and having like, I was on the side of Canadian Tire and had like 150 or 200 cars pull up. And just people's, the response on social media was massive. People were like, this is great. And it was kind of that heroing thing. They're like, what a hero. Somebody wrote like Dave Horton for mayor. And it's like, I, I don't think you want that. Like, I, <laughs> I know you like the movie, but you, you don't want chaos in, in those places. So that's really where it started was like, the equipment, the testing, and then it was like venue hunting. Like we hunted for venues for hours. Like where was there a parking lot big enough to host it? Because that one at those movies at Canadian Tire was like, we can't go small. Otherwise, we're going to make issues because you you need to, uh, if it's a negative experience in any way, people just go back in their hole and hide. And then it was realizing, like talking to my buddy Kyle uh, Sampson, because he does his own events. He's been doing them for years and I would assist him with those. Just help them because it's fun to do stuff together. But that realizing too, it was like, I have to get good at marketing. And I have to get, if I actually, if my goal, if I think that what I'm doing is good, if I think that people going to drive-in movies is actually helping them or drive-in video games or drive-in like church services or weddings, if I think these are a value, if I really believe that, then I have to make sure that people can show up to these. And if I want them to show up, then they need to know about it. And if they need to know about it, they need to know that they even, they don't even know that they want to go. So yeah, Kyle and I were driving around one night, uh, just bombing around town. We had dropped by a friend's house who we hadn't seen for like a couple of weeks. It was just kind of like super socially locked down. And we were leaving a friend's house. We were up in, by the airport. And we drove past this, like this blanket on the side of the road. And I flipped around. I was like, something is not right there. Flipped around. And, um, we had radios, Kyle and I, like we, I'm a rules guy. So like, I wouldn't go in his car with him at the, during the pandemic, it drove him crazy. So we had these like walkie talkies and I walkie talkied him. And I was like, I think that's a person that we just drove past on the side of the road. So I flipped around and sure enough, it was like this lady with a camouflage blanket on her, just laying on the side of the road up in like pine horn buckwood. I don't know what the, the I always confuse the area, but talking to this lady, she was like, I just took a whole bunch of pills and I'm scared I'm going to die. And, uh, I, we had just, I had just run some stupid, I say stupid, some silly, they're not stupid. They're silly. It's some silly drive-in trivia thing. Right. And, uh, then like an hour later to find this lady who was like, I just went into the park, took a handful of pills. I'm scared. I'm going to die. It just, I was like, what the heck is going on? Like what, what would have made this lady not take a handful of pills? Um, and that's where some of the stuff for like rooftop rock came in was like, if I really think that these trivia, drive-in trivia, drive-in kids trivia, drive-in movies, drive-in whatever. If I really think that these are helping people, then I really do think that if she was at something that night with someone, if she had seen any of her friends that night, I bet you she wouldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. So then it was that that idea of scale just like blew up to me. I was like, so then, so then who cares? Let's go as big as we can. Uh, and then so Rooftop Rock was Kyle's thing. That was his thing that I was helping him with for sure. But it ended up scaling up to be, it was going to be the largest drive-in event in North America, 15 acres of parking, right? It yeah. was like, and it would made like international news. Uh, BBC was calling. Like, it was that thing of like, yeah, if these are good, let's scale it. So yeah. that's kind of where like it started and why 
I ended up saying like, let's go huge. Mm-hmm. And where the personal cost became way less at that point too. Yeah. Where I could say like, if, if this is going to stop somebody from harming themselves, then what is it if I stay up till 2 a.m. for three weeks in a row sending emails, right? Like that, that doesn't matter. I'm off work. Well, you, you're such a compassionate person and it's incredible because you're not looking for the, uh, you know, this, the reward for yourself. You're not looking for a financial reward. You're not looking for, um, you know, the recognition, although you do do it in a slightly selfish way in terms of the fact that, you know, you're helping people and therefore that makes you feel really good about yourself, which is the absolute most ideological I don't know what the word is, but, but it's, it's amazing, right? Cause that, that's ideally what you want out of society. Um, the other thing you mentioned earlier is that you are, that people were saying to you, this isn't normal. And that actually motivated you rather than demotivated you because you realize there are not a lot of people out there that have the skill set and the mental aptitude to be able to actually execute on these things and help thousands and thousands of people, which is what you have now done. So Rooftop Rock came about and then you started planning the uh, the Candy Cruise in yeah. Prince George. How many people attended the Candy Cruise and how was that set up for those who are listening who aren't from the, the Prince George area? Yeah, so uh, Candy Cruise was the September long weekend. I was just leaving to go camping with my family. And uh, I remember the events had all been like like... Rooftop Rock was going to be big. Everything else was kind of smaller. And as things, my rule was, if somebody that can do this and get paid wants to do this, then I'm out. So I, and I told a bunch of the production companies in town, like, if you buy an FM transmitter, then I will not give mine away for free anymore. Or like when the bars open and when the bars and pubs opened up, I stopped running trivia like the next day. And when the drive-in movie theater opened, I stopped running free movies because I was like, people are also hurting financially. So, so there's this element of like creating business. So the candy cruise was, I looked at Halloween, started to see like, it was a big, it was the first big event that was coming after the start of the pandemic. There was Easter, but there's no social expectations for Easter, like church services, that kind of thing. Jesus coming back from the dead. That's an expectation. You know, no Jesus risen, Pretty big no one. Easter. Yeah, <laughs> that's a big one. But it was the first uh, holiday coming where there was social expectation and nobody knew what to do with it. And so, and I was like, if I can get a good idea out early enough, that is the most inclusive thing ever. And I was like, then everybody will jump on that idea. But if I wait too long, somebody, some organizations will probably put on an idea that serves their organization best, but we'll divide and we will not conquer. I was like, this is something that if we unify on, I just kind of saw it. I was like, if we're all on the same page, and there's scaleness, it can scale up, then this could be the thing for sure. So the premise was drive through Halloween. I talked to Northern Health and was like, would you shut down or have concern around someone driving through and driving past four or five businesses? And then those businesses, you know, set up in a parking lot, uh, handing with tongs and with like those like grabber reach poles, you know, handing candy to cars. And Northern Health was like, nah, and they, they chewed on it and they got back and they said, that actually sounds like that, that could be really great. Um, so then I, I messaged a smaller group. I kind of 10 businesses that I was like, if I can get these 10 as a foundation, then we'll scale up. And then it did. It scaled to 10 locations, intentionally spread as far across the city as I could get them. Um, and that you dressed up, you hopped in your car, you drove around with your family or by yourself or whatever it was. And then, yeah, you would drive through these 10 different drive-through experiences. So you'd drive past uh, five businesses and each business or organization would kind of hand you candy. They would be in costume. They would set up. And then we had cosplayers. So there was like Boba Fett you would drive past or a stormtrooper. I just love Star Wars. I don't care about any of the <laughs> costumes. Which uh, the Fiona from Shrek. So, and that's what it was. It was, it was you would drive through, stay in your vehicle, and then drive to the next place. But it was, it was cool. 10 locations all spread out. It took hours to do hours, <laughs> like to drive through. And so how many people do you think attended this event in total? I think what we told the media was like 2,500 ish, but that's like, was that 2,500 vehicles mm-hmm. or was that 2,500 people? And like lots of people didn't do all 10 locations. The lines were a bit obscene. 
So lots of people just did like one or two. So then was that like 2,500 people went to four locations, but they didn't go to the, so like, how do you do the math? I have no idea. But I do know that the, the, the lines, the one line was two kilometers long, like up in, I think, Buckhorn. It's like it was 2K long and not stopped moving the whole time. It was like, oh, my gosh. It was it was unbelievable. And I was on the front lines at the time. Yeah. And uh, uh, with my my son, who I think was about nine months old. Yeah. And I remember the the kids that were coming through. I mean, there was literally there were buses of kids coming through from disadvantaged areas that were not going to have a Halloween. Yeah. They dressed up. They were super excited. They wanted to talk to you, yeah. which of course was the most difficult part because as a vendor, we were trying to get people through as fast as humanly possible. Yeah. Um, but the you could see the smiling faces and the fact that they were very afraid of not having that Halloween and it let them just be a kid again. And it was really important. And I think that uh, uh, I certainly know that we saw more than 2,500 people here. So Dave, you're a community oriented guy. You do a lot for everybody else. And that doesn't just stop when you go home. You have a very large family. What are you willing to tell us about like your work at home to provide, you know, more, uh, more, more of an opportunity for kids in, in the community. Yeah. Our, our family's thing is, uh, from the outside, there's like a definitely a, like people romanticize our family. They look at it and they're like, ah, oh, like what, you know, what beautiful choices David and Janine made to like foster and adopt. And we've got kids with special needs and it's like people assume this great, Romantic, like yeah, they romanticize it and they they add, uh, for lack of a better term, they polish the turd. What they don't realize, right, is it's like what the reason our family is the way it is is because of like brokenness and health issues and like not our choices. Janine and I never ever sat down and said, yeah, we want six kids. Like never. Uh, There's a couple of times Janine and I would be sitting with. Uh, friends who had big families and their kids would just be wild. I remember leaning over and being like, never. Like, we will, we will, we will never. Because I just saw, like, the chaos of kids. I was like, there's one thing when people complain about the choices they make. I don't think people realize that they do this completely, but it's like, they, they gra- it's like griping about your spouse. It's like, it's like putting on stupid clothing and being like, huh, these stupid pants I put on. It's like, you put those on. Like, the choices you made are the reason that you are wearing those clothes. And it's like the choices you made are the reason you're in that marriage. And the reason that people complaining about their kids, right? Oh, my kids. Oh, and it's like, then get off of her. Like, get 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 a TV. Like, stop procreating. Like, <laughs> like you made those choices. That's something that's always killed me. And I was, so I was like, so let's make sure we don't put ourselves in this position that we're in this space where we're, like, complaining about how our family is built. I was like, I want to enjoy what we're doing. So... Yeah, essentially, like the long story short is we got married, tried to start having kids, realized pretty quick that we were struggling with infertility, took the bunk beds apart in our room. You know, we tried tried everything, but it was infertility is like a quiet uh, and it's a quiet, silent and invisible grief for couples of like everybody around you is getting pregnant. Like your friends wash their underwear in the same load and they're pregnant, right? Like people just like getting and all your friends are getting it and then they're starting to resent it oh this pregnancy is the worst and it's like but that's all we want Mm -hmm. all we want is to be pregnant like we would kill for the ability to be to be morning sick or whatever it is so for us it was tough so we had like a couple of years of that like grief that silent grief and the roller coaster of like hormone therapies and stuff of like maybe this will help us have our own kids nope guess we'll get our hopes up for the next thing um that sucks. So what we what we talked, this is the best part of it, is what we talked about and agreed upon was that we would never foster. We were like, that's too hard. And only other only better people than us can foster. Because you're you're willing to take somebody else's kids from a broken, you know, a possibly broken situation, not a broken kid, but just a broken situation, um, and and take them in and then you have to give them back. You never know. And we were like, no, we we aren't wired for that. And so then that's exactly what happened. <laughs> Cause we, we said we would never do it. Uh, so we were, 
years into infertility, got a, uh, my wife's boss on Facebook. She was a nurse and she posted and said, there's a, like a kid with high medical needs. Can somebody, do I know any nurse friends who'd foster? My wife and I were like, well, think about it. And then 10 days later we had him like 10 days from having no kid, not being pregnant, not knowing what the next step of our journey is to then having a baby in your home. Uh, it was a, it was a trip. And so then, and it was, it was like, there was no diapers. It was a colostomy bag, but it was kind of nice. Cause it's like, your normal is whatever you learn, mm-hmm. right? Like your normal is whatever you allow your normal to be. If you, if you build up these walls and you say, I will never, you know, I'll never, I'm never going to do public speaking. I'm never going to uh, help others in that way. I'm never, and it's like, you're the only person who's convinced of that. And you see it like even in the awfulness that happens in people's lives when they have to care for a loved one who's sick or dying or whatever it may be, or people who get trapped in like, like wild situations who have to survive and the things they have to do to survive the, the lengths they're willing to go to. So for us, it was, we, if we wanted kids, we had to be willing to do the steps. So we got our son, we fostered him and then his sister was born and that was just a phone call. Hey, his sister's been born, you know, and we weren't going to be able to foster her. And then the grandparents that were going to look after her uh, allowed us to foster, which is unbelievable as well. And then it's just that continued journey. So we did fertility clinic, got pregnant with triplets. We lost one in, early on in the pregnancy, <coughs> which is tough. And is another like silent grief thing. Like people lose babies and culturally we don't really address that. Um, and in faith communities, we're getting better at addressing that. But it's like, if that isn't grief, like, I don't know, like if that isn't like death and grief, I don't know what is. So pregnant with triplets, lost one early on, had twins, uh, continued to foster, had kids kind of come in and out and then got um, a girl, got her brother through foster care. And then uh, like found out that their mom had been a camper at the camp and like met her and was like, oh my gosh. Like, I remember you. And uh, she uh, passed away when she was 23, which was super tragic as well. And it is like, you look at the people look at her family and they're like, you know, what, what good people, what beautiful choices. And it's like, I didn't want this. Like, this is not a laid out plan and intention. What it was, was us. It's submission to us saying like, we don't know. And we actually are more convinced that what will come is better than if we planned it. And that's part of a, like a faith thing is submission and trust. And I, it, a lot of people do that without faith. Uh, and that blows me away. Like without like the idea of, you know, a, a higher power in like guiding and directing that. I and mean, that's where our hope and our trust is, is that we're going to be okay with whatever comes, even if we may not like it in the moment. So when I say polished turd, it is, it's like brokenness, death of a parent. You got like addiction, you've got all these things that had put these kids into our family. So people look and they say, how great. And it's like, but like really look at it. And it's, there's a lot less of our choice and more just our, it's our willingness more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. A a lot of people would be, would have a very difficult time with just one, you know, of, of these circumstances. You have a variety of them, but you've created a home and also like a, a strength for your family that is very recognizable outside of, of the community. Um, how, how do you balance your own mental health needs because you're doing so much for everyone else? I think through, through the pandemic, especially, and through having kids, my wife and I have said over and over, like, I think we're just freaks. Like, I think is what it is. I think whatever is going on in my head, and in my wife's head, like we didn't, we don't know how we're wired. Right. And I don't think I I'm convinced that people actually don't know themselves nearly as well as they think they do. That's the thing of like submission. Like I am totally convinced people have no idea what they're able to accomplish. They don't know. And the great, the greatest lie is the one that they're telling themselves. Like when people say, I can't do it. It's like, I bet you, you could like, I, I bet, I bet you could, but we, we have realized that we've, just our wiring, not necessarily our choices, but just like whether it's gen- it's genetics, it's circumstances, it's how we were raised, it's whatever's going on in my own head that I <laughs> don't want to find out about, don't want to get it uh, classified. Uh, we do have some like boundaries that I think other families have hit and have been like we we've tried and we can't kind of thing. Like we've had friends that have done fostering and they've had a really hard time with it. 
where we've had a, a lot easier time with it because of the circumstances that have come through. And we've looked at other situations and been like, I can never do that. So I don't know. I, for like running events and stuff as well, it's like not every, it, it's recognizing not everybody is this way and that's okay. And we can have zero expectation on other humans. They need to be willing to have their own boundaries, et cetera. But I am convinced people don't know what they can do. They're convinced that they're good at watching TV and good at being entertained. But I think people can do a lot more than they think they can. Yeah. There, Conor McGregor once said, uh, of course, the legendary MMA fighter, um, that nothing in the external world can defeat us. It's only what we internalize that can defeat us. Yeah. And if we can strengthen our own confidence and our own abilities and our own trust in ourselves and or our faith and or the ability to, to understand that things will be all right, um, then you can build up a wall in which these circumstances that you do not have control over can really uh, have less of an impact on you. And I think you have clearly demonstrated this um, and and obviously are very strong in character and as an individual. Talking about something really fun and, and neat is coming full circle now. You've recently uh, been named the executive director mm-hmm. of the Nest Lake Bible Camp. And uh, so what do you see envision for yourself as you embark on this new journey? I love working for the camp. The it's a it's a such a cool job. Like it's such a cool place. So most most communities our size would have like three or four camps in their area, right? They'd have a Baptist camp and like an overnight like YMCA camp and like you know a Mennonite camp, like a bunch of it'd be a variety of experiences. But the the unicorn, the the strangeness, the super unique thing with Nest Lake is that there's not a lot of other camps. Like there's a really great day camp through Camp Canadac with the YMCA, and that's like that's an awesome day camp. Um, but there's not another overnight camp. I think one of the closest ones is our sister camp in Fort St. James. It's like our, our own organization is the next closest thing. So the ownership piece is one part of like being the executive director there um, that I am really looking forward to and really looking forward to kind of like honor, essentially honor the monopoly that Nest Lake has. We have a total monopoly. If kids want to do an overnight camp in Northern BC, they have to come through Nest Lake Bible Camp. And so for myself, it's recognizing we have no interest in waging a culture war. Um, our role as a camp and our role as a church isn't to, to come in and to push as hard as we can against culture. And that that's like the common, I think, like misconception is that we're here to like fight like this morality war. But for us, it is. It's like I'm we've recognized in our national who owns us this thing of like if if we're the only overnight place, then we need to really honor it. We are a Bible camp. We do teach. We do preach. We do you know, like kind of like invite people into the faith. But we also, I love telling our campers, like you can come and tell us this is just horse crap. Like we'll tell you, we'll tell you what we believe. And we always give a response time after these discussion times. And that's the part I'm really looking forward to is carrying some of that trust that's been built around my own name through, through COVID events, like Candy Cruise, the most excellent cruise and family day adventure. These things that people were like, well, like what, what does Dave want out of these things? Um, and hopefully carrying and honoring that trust and monopoly so that people can, they can come have a great experience, hear our perspective, but not feel like pressured or forced kind of into anything. And they, and and even that thing of like, that they're able to kind of develop their own beliefs by the conversations they're willing to have. Like maybe they've never been asked what they think in response to any kind of spiritual conversation before. So that's part of it for sure that I'm like, this is awesome. And then we get to do crazy stuff. Like we get to do whatever. I'm like, we have like our vision, you know, vision, mission statements, that kind of thing. And the one thing that is just rolling around my head constantly, I asked, I read this book, uh, start with why. And, uh, our, like, I'm like, what is our why? Cause our mission statement has a lot of what we do and how we do it. And I'm pretty convinced our why I haven't convinced our board of this <laughs> or our staff or any supporters. I'm pretty sure our why is new experiences. And that's like, and a new experience is a healthy friendship with an adult. Or for some, it's not being yelled at by an adult. For some, a new experience is sitting at a table for an hour, eating a meal and having just conversation. And where for others, a new experience is having a spiritual conversation. It may even be from like different ends in disagreement, but having one that isn't a fight, that is an actual sharing and conversation. 
And then there's new experiences of jungle swings and giant barges and run-on skits and the silliness and hilarity of what we do. So I can't, that's the thing that's stuck in my head of like, we get to just keep doing new things and offering new things to everybody who comes through. And it's like, that's a hoot. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I'm in the, I, I envision that this is just like the perfect role for you because it's a culmination of everything that you love and everything you do well. Uh, Start With Why by Simon Sinek. Amazing book. Highly recommend anyone uh, read it. Mm -hmm. Dave, for people who are interested in following you and seeing your development as you move forward in the future, what social channels can they find you on? I, (laughs) so through the pandemic, I built up this like uh, pandemic friendly entertainment. That was part of the thing of like, if I don't market and I don't have a lightning rod for the attention to go to, then people won't know and my efforts will be less fruitful. So, but that now that the pandemic is done, I named that intentionally. So when the pandemic is over, so that, I mean, you can follow that thing, but it's like dead in the water. It really is like my personal Facebook, like just Dave Horton on Facebook or Dave Horton, Dave on Instagram. It's like, I just post my life and I just kind of run my life through those channels are pretty like transparency and openness uh, are like really valuable to me and my wife. Um, especially like in community work that it's like people know what the good, the bad, the up, the down. And it's like, I fundraise my wage. Like part of the weirdness of the camp is that we don't get paid like a salary. We get told you can raise this much, but you have to make it. And so much of, uh, getting people to buy in to support you financially and with prayer and other ways is for them to know what's going on. So yeah, my Instagram is Dave Horton, Dave Facebook is, is that, and then the camp posts quite a bit of stuff as well, but I just kind of run my life through those channels. It drives some people crazy, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we could talk for another two hours. You have an incredibly interesting story. I think you helped a lot of people today. Uh, this has been You Sip by Sip and uh, Dave Horton, thank you for joining us. We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to You Sip, I Sip. Please hit the five-star rating and leave us a review. If you'd like to learn more about Northern Lights Winery, text us at 604-670-4046 or visit us on social media at Northern Lights Winery.